appreciate the worship team this morning. How about you? There's been a there's been a, a theme, I think, running throughout our, our songs about the goodness of God and how God has been good to us. And I hope you know that. I hope you believe that. Young people, I hope you know that. God is good. The text this morning, though, is going to ask us to not think about ourselves. It's going to ask us to think about the reality that God isn't just good to us. He's good to others that we actually might not even like. Or think that God shouldn't be good to. Today's text comes from Matthew chapter 15. I'll be reading 20, verses 21 to 28 in just a moment. But I have to say a few introductory words to this text because this is maybe one of the hardest texts in the Gospels to preach. One of the hardest to understand. We certainly have much more complicated passages in the scriptures to wrestle with, that's for sure. This this story that I'm about to read is not overly complicated that way. And Jesus offers us teachings that are far more complex in nature and demanding than this one. But this text surely is in the top five of New Testament, maybe all of Scripture passages that read as offensive to us. Before I read the text, let me just name the problem areas. Jesus ignores a woman who's in need. Have we seen that before? We haven't. When he does speak to this woman, he seems to suggest or refer to her as a dog. Have we seen that before from Jesus? We haven't. So this, in some ways, seems from the very beginning a public relations nightmare, right? Thanks to social media, we have lots of those that happen now uh, because people say really stupid things. And we have to ask, like, is this a public relation nightmare? Is this like the people that say something that shouldn't, then they quickly have to backtrack and explain, well, that's not what I meant. And do we have recorded in our Bible a moment where Jesus said something that is offensive to a person and, and we have to wrestle with why is it recorded? Why didn't Matthew, and this same story is in Mark's gospel as well, why didn't they edit this out, for instance? If it comes across when we read it as offensive, and if you don't read it as being offensive in the first reading, then I'm not sure why, because to refer to a person as a dog is not a nice thing. We shouldn't be doing that. And yet we find Jesus doing that. So you would think that maybe Matthew and Mark would be embarrassed by this story and want to cut it out and not pass it on, but they record the story. And, and you would also think that maybe somewhere along the line that the early Christians would say, you know what, this story is too offensive. This story is, is too embarrassing. We shouldn't pass this story on. And yet, friends, here we are 2,000 years later, and it's in our Bible. So maybe the initial offense of it the awkwardness of it. Maybe we need to push through that to see, is Jesus doing something here that comes off as offensive at first, but really isn't that way at all? 
In order for us to see that different interpretation, we need to set aside some of our initial thoughts to this because it doesn't come across very good. Listen to what Matthew says in starting with verse 21. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. Jesus answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him, Lord, help me, she said. He replied, It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. God, these are challenging words. This is a hard story for us to to get past the initial offense of it. Would you help us to listen carefully to you this morning? Help us wrestle with this text that has been passed on to us because we believe that it must be telling us something about Jesus and about ourselves that we need to hear this morning. Help us, God. Amen. Would you be shocked if Jesus had just simply healed this woman's daughter from the get-go? That sounds like the Jesus we know, doesn't it? We've met that Jesus many times already as we've studied the Gospel of Matthew. When somebody is sick, when somebody is ailing, he meets their need. We've met that Jesus. He's, he's done that time and time again. And in fact, it's not just that he does it for Jewish people. We've seen in, in Matthew's gospel that he's willing to do it for non-Jews as well, what we call Gentiles. The world, the ancient world, uh, uh, in terms of, of the Bible, is separated between the Jewish people and those that are not Jews, Gentiles. And we saw that in Matthew chapter 8, he healed the centurion servant. The centurion would have been a guard, um, a commander in the Roman army, would have been Gentile. The servant most likely was Gentile as well, so Jesus healed a Gentile. We also saw Jesus heal the demoniacs in, uh, in the Gerasenes, the two men that were suffering under the spirits, the, the demons. Those gentlemen, although we don't know exactly, were most likely Gentile as well because that side of the sea was mostly Gentile. So we've been given these sorts of little windows into Jesus being able to go across these ancient boundary markers and that he's willing to heal non-Jewish people. But why didn't Jesus, why didn't Jesus just heal the girl and why is he silent? Something's going on here that we need to wrestle with. This isn't the Jesus that we have met and known. This isn't the typical way that he acts in the Gospel of Matthew. Something's up. We need to wrestle with this. Commentators struggle mightily with this text, and they're all over the map. There are lots of different ways 
that you can go in interpreting this passage. I don't have time, and I think it would be boring if I told you all the ways. Uh, Just know this. If you don't like my way this morning, then there might be a better one out there. How about that? Uh, Verse 21, I think, should be the thing that starts us seeing this passage appropriately. There should be some alarm bells going off for us. If not for us, certainly for Matthew's original audience. Seems very clear from the way Matthew tells his Jesus story, and each of these Gospels is telling the Jesus story in particular ways because they're telling it to particular communities. And they have needs, and so they tell this Jesus story in particular ways. And it seems very clear as we've been following the Gospel of Matthew that he's writing to a predominantly Jewish community, those that were well-versed in the Old Testament, those that knew the story of Moses. And so we've talked on many occasions how Jesus is presented to us through the Gospel of Matthew as this new Moses-like figure. We mentioned this last week. So when we're told that Jesus was near Sidon, we probably need to pause. That may be a detail for you that doesn't matter. But for people that are grounded in the Old Testament, some alarm bells should be going off. 1 Kings chapter 17 tells us the story of Elijah and the the widow and her son. And I don't have time to recount that entire story to you. I'd encourage you to go back to read 1 Kings chapter 17 to, to hear it, to see is there a connection between that ancient story and this story. Is Jesus gone to Sidon for a particular reason? Sidon, by the way, is Tyre and Sidon are Gentile communities. There might have been some Jewish people living in that area, but they would have been known as Gentile communities. So this isn't the typical place that Jesus would go. And yet we find him going to Sidon. Why? Well, maybe to connect what is about to happen to the story in 1 King and Elijah, where Elijah was being cared for by the prophet of God, or by God, excuse me, he's the prophet. Uh, He's being cared for by God, and God sends him to the widow who has a son, and they are about to run out of food, and God's provision comes through the Gentile woman to the prophet of God. This is an interesting story. And in fact, in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 4, we find that Jesus uses that story when he goes to his hometown synagogue and delivers the message from the scroll of Isaiah, which we kind of sung part of that today. He unrolls the scroll. He reads Isaiah to them. People are enamored with Jesus. And then he begins to interpret the passage and one of the ways, or the scroll, and one of the ways that he interprets it is to tell this story of what happened to Elijah. And the people respond to this story that that an outsider was used by God by getting angry at Jesus, taking him out to the cliff, and they're about to throw him off. They want to kill Jesus. There's something very potent about that ancient story. They were offended because the chosenness that we find in scripture is for the Jewish people. That's their belief. And Jesus was challenging it. Luke's gospel begins in chapter four, already undermining that ancient belief. But Luke is a Gentile, we believe, writing to Gentile community. And so it's early in his gospel that he begins to unweave or undo that ancient narrative. It's only now in Matthew chapter 15, 
that we finally begin to see that this is going to happen in Matthew's gospel as well. In other words, writing to a Jewish community, it's taken Matthew a little bit longer to get here. But he's about to hit us over the head with the reality that chosenness isn't just for the people that we think it's for. He's going to hit over the head the original audience that chosenness isn't just for Jewish people anymore. Are you with me? But why does Jesus seem so cold? Why does he have to come across as kind of mean in this passage? Some commentators take this as a reminder to us that, or a way of teaching us that Jesus was not just fully divine, which is easier to see in some of the narratives of Scripture, but that he's also fully human. So they want to say that it's his human side that is learning something in this passage, that actually it's this interaction with this Canaanite woman that is going to help Jesus learn God's true plan. Now, I'm all in favor of supporting and believing that Jesus is both fully God and fully human. And I love the instances in the, in the scriptures where we see Jesus's humanity it speaks to me. But I think we're missing, misunderstanding this passage if we think that Jesus doesn't know what's happening. I never want to pit God the Father and God the Son against each other, and I don't believe that Jesus is in the dark here. I think he's doing something in a very specific way to elicit response, and for us as observer, it seems kind of harsh, and it seems difficult, and I'm going to try to walk us through it, but I think Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. So if Jesus isn't learning something new in this story, why does he take the posture, this posture with a hurting woman? A hint for us, I believe, comes with Matthew calling her a Canaanite. If you read this passage, this same story in Mark's gospel, he's going to call her Syrophoenician, which would have been, at that day and age, that would have been the more modern term to use. Canaanite was kind of blasé in the past. We didn't, they didn't use that language as much in Jesus's day. But if you're familiar with the Old Testament at all, you know the Canaanites come up time and again, don't they? Once the Israelites come out of Egypt and enter into the promised land, that is the land of the Canaanites. And so we see throughout the Old Testament this ancient battle between the, the Israelites and the Canaanites. And if they're not warring with each other, if the Canaanites are not trying to defeat God's people, the Israelites, then guess what the Canaanites are doing? They're wooing the Israelites to come worship their gods. They're offering ways for the Israelites to not be faithful to Yahweh. So these are the ancient nemesis of the Jewish people. Matthew's telling his gospel to a predominantly Jewish community in Jewish ways. He wants us to pick up on this. She's Canaanite. There's a lot that goes into this. She's our enemy. She represents uh, death and destruction, violence, war. She represents our failure to live up to the covenant that God has called us to. We chose to walk after foreign gods, the Canaanite gods, many of them. We chose to bow down and worship them instead of the one true God. And that led to us being exiled, losing the promised land. So by the time we get to Jesus, you need to understand that the Canaanite name is going to elicit a lot of anger, a lot of resentment. This is not a person, if you are a Jew, to love. 
And here she comes, this woman, representing all of that history, that ugliness, that failure. And Jesus is silent to her cries. He doesn't respond to her immediately. And the text tells us that the disciples get so tired of this. They find her to be obnoxious, and why wouldn't they? She's the enemy. She won't shut up. She won't leave us alone. Jesus, tell her to go away. And I think Jesus, if you want to understand what is happening here, I think you need to understand that Jesus is silent for two reasons. He's wanting to see the hearts and minds of his disciples. He's wanting them to reveal themselves in this narrative. If he speaks too quickly, if he does the thing that we expect too quickly, then we don't know where the, the, Israel, or the, the disciples excuse me, stand in this story. And I think one of the things you need to understand is that Matthew's telling it in this way so that he's exposing something to his Jewish community that he's writing to. Okay? Jesus' silence allows that to come forward into the text. But his silence also is giving space for this woman to reveal herself. And she is persistent to the point of being obnoxious to the disciples. Tell her to go away. I think the, re- the disciples in doing this have revealed their ancient bias. They don't see her as somebody that can be a part of God's kingdom. They see her as an outsider, and they see her as an enemy. Shut her up. They make no room for her. But did you see what she said when she cried out to Jesus? A Canaanite, living in outside of of the, the centrality of Judaism far away from Jerusalem. So she's a Canaanite worshiping other gods. She's not Jewish. And she sees Jesus come along and she says, Lord. Did you notice that? Kyrios in the Greek. Now that's a title that can just mean sir. It's also a name that was given to Caesar. He was Lord. So it can mean ruler. It can mean king. It can be a highly respected position. So she could just be being respectful at this point. We don't know just by that one word. But then what were the very next words that she spoke? Son of David, a Canaanite, whose history was battling against the Israelites, their greatest king, King David, Can you imagine how she was raised and what she thought about the Israelites, what she was told about King David? And here she is at this moment of crisis. She sees Jesus come along and she says, Lord, son of David. Now, you and I should be hearing all sorts of things here, but essentially what she is calling Jesus is Messiah. This This is her submitting to Jesus. I think you're the one. I think you're the one that can save me. I think you are the Christ. Now those words aren't recorded here, but that's what we should be hearing. And did you notice that the disciples hear this and they want Jesus to send her away? They don't pause. They don't say, wait a minute. What? How are those words coming out of this person's mouth? They don't belong in her mouth. How is she recognizing Jesus as the son of David? Startling. And yet all they can see is ancient enemy get her out of here. Jesus, send her away. It should not be lost on us 
that Matthew places this story right on the heels of Jesus battling over the subject of purity with the Pharisees. That's how chapter 15 starts. This woman should be considered unclean by Jewish standards. She is unclean. A person, therefore, to be avoided, not to interact with. So this passage is showing us that the disciples in this moment are acting more like the Pharisees than they are like Jesus. But it's hard to see Jesus in this passage because he does things that he doesn't do elsewhere. Once the disciples reveal their hearts in this passage, so Jesus is silent until the disciples speak, and then Jesus speaks. Verse 24, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. And doesn't that just sound like he's confirming what every, every good Jew should believe at that time? That the Messiah is only for Jewish people, that the Messiah isn't for everybody. I'm only here for the lost sheep of Israel. And the disciples are probably thinking, that's right, Jesus. Send her away. She doesn't know. But I don't think Jesus is trying to confirm what the disciples already think at all. I think this, Jesus is stating something that is widely believed at the time by Jewish people, apparently by his disciples, so that we can see how the woman responds to this ancient bias. Verse 25, she hears Jesus, she steps in front of him, and she kneels down before him. She's declared him Lord, Son of David. And now she kneels down before him. Her words and her actions are in total alignment here. This is authentic worship. She hears Jesus. She knows what he's saying, and yet she still wants to worship him as we believe that he is. King, Messiah. But Jesus' response to this act of worship and personal cry for help is shocking, I think. Because it's here that we get the really offensive words, I think. It's this, commentators call it a mini parable, this short story. But it's hard not to, it's hard to sort of decouple it from her. Why does he refer to her as a dog? Now, the commentators want us to know that the, the word in the Greek that's used here is more like puppy or pet, a dog that you love. And we've had a passing of a dog that was loved by a family in their community. We love our animals. But as much as we love our animals, I don't think any one of us wants to be called a dog, do we? Even a puppy? Like, I don't... It maybe softens it a bit, but it doesn't remove... Remove the pain of this. The challenge we face is that over 2,000 years removed from this, or nearly 2,000 years removed from this incident, it's hard for us to know exactly why Jesus says what he says here. For instance, was this a common uh, idiom? Was this a, a way of people communicating? Was this known in the region of Sidon for particular reasons? It's hard for us to know that. Did the original audience that would have heard this in Matthew's gospel when it was read to them know exactly why Jesus did this? 2,000 years later, we've lost some of that history, and it's, so it just, 
comes to us and it's a bit grating, it's, uh, I don't like that. But I wonder if Jesus is voicing what is, just simply voicing what is in the hearts and minds of his disciples and the original hearers, the people that Matthew's writing to. I suspect this is the case because it's inconceivable to me that Jesus would intentionally want to harm this woman. That's not the Jesus I know. Is that the Jesus you know? We don't see that Jesus in the gospel, do we? He doesn't want to intentionally harm anybody. I think what he's doing is giving her the opportunity to show us how remarkable her faith really is. By vocalizing the ugliness of the prevailing thought of that day, we now get to see an outsider rise to the occasion. And does she rise to the occasion? My word. Jesus says to her, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. And I think most people would have walked away thinking he doesn't have anything to offer me. They could have walked away offended. But she responds, yes, it is, Lord. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. It's a witty comeback. But friends, she's revealing to us how much she really understands about the kingdom of God. And it's remarkable how much she understands because what does she say? There's always enough for us. In God's kingdom, there's not just a limited supply of grace, love, and forgiveness. There is always a morsel left over. There's always a crumb that can come to a person, a person such as me. You and I are here this morning because God's grace extends across boundaries. We are Gentiles not born into Jewish heritage. But here we are 2,000 years later with the church exploded around the globe because God's kingdom crosses boundaries. There are always, there's always enough. A tiny morsel might come to us, but that tiny morsel, friend, is enough to change our lives. This woman who grew up outside of Judaism, grew up thinking and hating Judaism, no doubt, sees Jesus and sees him who he really is. For the first time, we get to see that these ancient barriers are breaking down in this gospel, that at the end of this gospel, we're going to see Jesus compel his disciples to go forth into all the nations. Because guess what, friends? There's enough. There's enough. But here in chapter 15, we are hit over the head with that reality being right in front of us. And it's not Jesus that says these words. It's not Jesus that commands these words. We get to see a Canaanite woman reveal it to the disciples, to Matthew's early church, to us 2,000 years later. She reveals the truth to us of who Jesus is and what God's kingdom is all about. Wow. Really? Wow. I have to imagine that if the disciples, that their jaw had to just drop to the floor when this happened, because this is so shocking. This is not the person that should be teaching anybody about God. And yet she does. 
that gets me thinking about us. We're going to come to the table in just a moment. And I think one of the ways that we can respond to this story is to recognize that we were once the outsider. You don't earn your way into God's kingdom. You have no right to be the son and daughter of God. That the only reason you and I are able to come to the table is because Jesus has transcended, crossed over the boundary markers. He's extended the invitation to you, men and women, young and old, rich and poor, educated, uneducated, black and white, everybody to come to his table. Because guess what? At his table, there's enough. Enough grace for you. That's what the Canaanite woman knew. And that's what she experienced. Jesus sees her faith and he just explodes. He's so proud of her. I think we re- see at the end of this that he, he knew all along what the end was, result was going to be. He saw in her a person of faith. He knew where this was going to go. And he just is proud of her at the end. Her faith is remarkable. I think he's proud of you too. When you understand that you don't earn it, that you're not worthy, but by faith, you're going to see Jesus for who he is. And so we have an opportunity to come to the table to receive the grace that's put into our hands, symbols of the grace, the broken body, the spilt blood. Oh, it's for you. But it's not just for you. So as we come to the table this morning, I'm going to ask something of you. I want you to come to the table with your enemy in mind. The person that's harmed you in mind. The person that you love the least in this world in mind. The group of people that you, you don't like, you despise. I want you to come to the table with them in mind because friends this text is telling us that God's already working he's already there he's already changing lives and if we have eyes to see then what we're going to see is that we're going to run up against the ancient enemy of God and that person is already going to be changed by God just like this Canaanite woman but the only way that you and I will see that See, through our ancient bias, our ancient hurt, is if God gives us new eyes. Jesus, as we come to the table, it is your table. We come as real human beings. I come as a real human being. I have real feelings. I have real memories. I have real hurt. We each do. Words have been spoken to us. We've been raised in families that have shaped us in particular ways to think about particular people. So we come conflicted this morning. We know we need grace from you. We acknowledge that. But I think this text, God is asking us to recognize that we are worshiping a God that wants to extend grace to everybody. 
to even the most unlikely of persons. That's uncomfortable for us. It's unsettling. But as we come to the table this morning, would you meet us? Would you extend grace to us so that we can extend grace to others?